I am somewhat shamed, ashamed to admit that when I was a teenager, I was really, really into professional wrestling. Like when I was a teenager, and, and if you ask my wife, who may be watching right now, uh, she, she would tell you that it was all the way up into my 20s, but that's neither here nor there. When I was a teenager, I was really into professional wrestling. I was into the WWF, and if you're like me, if you're old school like me, it was, it's F, not E. Okay, so I was into the WWF, and I was, a, as a young man, I was a Hulkamaniac brother. I was a Hulkamaniac brother. I was totally a Hulkster. All right, I loved Hulk Hogan. And because I loved Hulk Hogan, it meant that I hated Randy Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> Couldn't stand Randy. Couldn't stand Randy Savage because he was the enemy. Hulk Hogan, set your prayers, eat your vitamins, you know, get lots of rest, whatever. You know, uh, I, I was a Hulkamaniac. And because I was a Hulkamaniac, I could not be on Team Savage until one day. Randy Macho Man Savage extended the hand of friendship to the Hulkster. And Hulkster's looking around. I mean, I, I remember it so clearly. I mean, I would stay up. I, like, Saturday mornings, I would get up and I would watch it. And sometimes late at night on Saturday nights, I would sneak out of my bedroom and watch Saturday night's main event uh, at 10.30 on Channel 5. I mean, I, I kid you not, I was really into it. Um, and so uh, there was this one night, man, there's one night that uh, Savage and Hogan became friends. Like, this, the hand of friendship. And the crowd was going wild. People were going nuts. And they formed a tag team, the Mega powers. Oh, it was so great. And it was like, how in the world could that happen though? How could that happen that like this bad guy became a good guy? How could the bad guy become a good guy? You know, it's, we've all known people like that, right? You know, people that maybe we didn't like for a long time, people that we weren't friends with all of a sudden now we find common ground and we become friends with them. And, and maybe they were the bad guy and all of a sudden they became the good guy. Or maybe you were the bad guy. Who became the good guy? <laughs> no. We've all known people in our lives, perhaps, that we would think to ourselves, they, they, they would never become a Christian. They're just too far gone. Maybe we sit in judgment over them. Maybe we sit in judgment on them and we think, there's no way they would ever become a Christian. There's no way they'd ever put their faith in Jesus. There's no way that they would ever become good. There's no way that God could ever forgive them. And maybe you think that about yourself. There's no way that God could ever forgive me for the things that I did, the things that I've done, the things that I'm doing. There's no way God could ever forgive me. I'm just too much of a bad guy. Too big of a sinner. Too terrible of a person. There's just no way that God could ever forgive me. Maybe you've thought that. If you've ever thought that, if you've ever thought there's no hope for me, there's no forgiveness for me, there's no way that I could ever become friends with God. I could never be the good guy. I'm always going to be the bad guy. This message is for you. This message tonight is for you. We started a series here several weeks ago called Unleashed. This series is all about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book in the New Testament written by a historian by the name of Luke. 
And Luke wrote this book about the early church, the history of the first century church. And what we are doing here at GFCC is we are studying the book of Acts chapter by chapter, week by week, for 28 weeks through all 28 chapters. And we are studying how they did church in the first century to learn how we can do church in the 21st century. What principles of the first century church can we apply to the 21st century church? And so that's what we've been talking about. We are in Acts chapter 9 this week. Last week we were in Acts chapter 8. We saw the story of Philip and how the gospel went from uh, just a a Jerusalem-centric thing to uh, spreading to Judea and Samaria, the region surrounding Jerusalem, and the gospel started to, to spread. We were introduced, we saw a little snippet about a man named Saul, and Saul was a Pharisee, meaning he was committed and devoted to the law of Moses, and he was zealous for the law of Moses. He was anti-Christian, so much so that he was putting Christians in jail. Jews who had converted to Christianity, Saul was throwing in jail. And that's where we pick up our story in Acts chapter 9. This story is one of my favorite stories in all of scripture, in all of history, because I love a good redemption story. Anybody like redemption stories? I love redemption stories. I I saw one recently that I really loved, uh, the movie I Can Only Imagine. If you've seen, I can only imagine it's a redemption story where Bart Miller's father is redeemed and his life turns around. I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, but if you haven't seen, I can only imagine, check out that movie. It's really good. I can only imagine. Uh, But uh, I love a good redemption story. and, And the story of Saul is an incredible redemption story. So we are in Acts chapter 9. If you brought a Bible, grab your Bible, turn to Acts 9. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can follow along on the GFCC app. We have an app that you can download to your phone or your tablet by going to your app store and searching for GFCC. Or uh, you can uh, follow along on a Bible app like Bible Gateway or YouVersion. Uh, We are in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to cover most of this chapter this week. But the end of the chapter, we're going to actually talk about next week. uh, Because there's a transition um, at the end of chapter 9 that we're going to lump into next week with chapter 10. So just to let you know, that's what we're going to do. So we're talking about Saul, who eventually became the Apostle Paul. Saul was breathing out, according to Luke, murderous threats against Christians, against the church. He was breathing out murderous threats. In other words, he was threatening to kill Christians. He was threatening to kill Christians, specifically Jews who had converted to Christianity. And he went to the chief priest, the high priest in Jerusalem, and he asked for letters that he could present to the synagogues in the city of Damascus. Now, Damascus was 150 miles away from Jerusalem. So it's a long trip. It's a long journey. And Saul is going to get these letters with permission to go to Damascus and to imprison, to to arrest Jews who become Christians, and to imprison them, take them back to Jerusalem, and throw them in jail. Okay? We're going to look at verses 3 through 5. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. 
Now, scholars kind of debate what Saul was referring to when he said, who are you, Lord? Was he acknowledging Jesus as the Lord, or was it more of a term of respect? Kind of like when you say sir or madam to somebody. Um, uh, was he just saying, who are you, Lord, as a sign of respect? Because he knew there was something out there bigger than himself that he was not acknowledging Jesus as Lord yet. Either way, Saul is knocked to the ground by this blinding light. The people around him could hear something, but they didn't hear the voice, but it was the voice of Jesus. And I want to tell you something really important about how Jesus feels about his church. Jesus loves his church. The Bible in the New Testament calls the church the bride of Christ. And I love what Jesus says to Saul. Why do you persecute me? You're not persecuting my people. You're persecuting me. And when you persecute the church, when you tear down the church, when you run down the church, when you insult the church, you are insulting, tearing down, running down Jesus. When you persecute the church, you are persecuting Jesus. Jesus takes his church personally. He loves his church like big church, like universal, like everybody, all his believers. He loves us all. Individual churches like GFCC. Jesus loves GFCC. For all of our faults and all of our foibles and all of our failures and all of our problems, Jesus loves GFCC. So the next time you go to start complaining about something at church, just know you are complaining about Jesus' bride. You are insulting Jesus' bride, and he takes that personally. So be careful what you say about Jesus's bride, okay? Just, just so you know. So the, those who are with Saul, they hear a voice. Uh, they, they don't understand what it's saying. They don't know what's going on. And so uh, once this light goes away, uh, Saul is blind. He can't see. For three days, he's totally blind. They take him by the hand into Damascus, and he stays there for three days and doesn't eat or drink anything. Meanwhile, a man named Ananias, a Christian, a believer named Ananias, who lived in Damascus, had a vision of Jesus. Look at verses uh, 10 and 11. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, this is kind of a, a very um, specific instruction. He tells him, go to the house, on, the house of Judas on Straight Street. Judas was a common name. It's not Judas uh, who betrayed Jesus. It's a different Judas. And he lived on Straight Street. Now, just so you know, Straight Street is the main thoroughfare through Damascus. It was the main thoroughfare in ancient Damascus. It is the main thoroughfare still to this day in Damascus. Damascus in Syria is one of the oldest cities on the planet. It's one of the oldest cities in history. And that straight street where Judas lived, I don't think his house is still there, but that's, that straight street is still there. And it is the main thoroughfare. Wouldn't that be something, though? Like, this is the house where Saul became Paul. Um, but uh, that, ha that, that street is still there. Straight Street is still the main thoroughfare through uh, Damascus. So Ananias protests. Ananias protests to God, to Jesus, and says, Look, Lord, um, I've heard of this guy that you want me to go see. And uh, he was sent here to arrest people like me. I'm not so sure I want to do this. Look at verses 15 and 16. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, go, with like an exclamation point, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. In other words, Jesus says to Ananias, I have a plan for Saul. I have a purpose for Saul. And I know what he was doing before, but I'm about to turn his life upside down. I'm about to change everything for Saul. That's exactly what happened. So Ananias uh, goes into Damascus. He goes to the house on Straight Street. He goes up to Saul, and, and he, again, Saul has, is blind, and he hasn't eaten or drinking anything in three days. And what does he do? He puts his hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And something like scales, fish scales, fell from his eyes, and he was able to see. And it says he was immediately baptized. And then... He ate something and regained his strength. And the most incredible thing happens when Saul is baptized and uh, has, uh, has this conversion experience when he becomes a follower of Jesus. Look at verses 20 and 21. At once, at once it says, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take as prisoners, take them as prisoners to the chief priests? It says Saul grew more and more powerful, more popular, and, and everybody was, I like how Luke puts it, baffled. They were flabbergasted. They were surprised. They were astonished. They were shocked. I mean, this is like. Christian enemy number one. And now all of a sudden he is in the synagogues preaching that Jesus is the son of God. How is that possible? Because he had an encounter with Jesus, a real live encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you have an encounter with Jesus, when you encounter Jesus Christ and he gets a hold of you, he can change everything for you. Well, the uh, Jewish folks there in Damascus weren't very happy with Saul, and they hatched a plan to kill him. They're like, we got to nip this guy right in the bud right now. We're going to kill this guy. And they hatched a plan to kill Saul. They guarded the city gates. They were watching the city gates to see when Saul was going to leave, and they were going to get him, and they were going to kill him. The believers in Jesus heard about this plan, and what they did was they hid Saul until it was night, and then they, lowered, they took him, put him in a basket, and they lowered him outside a, 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 an opening in the city wall. And Saul escaped, and he went back to Jerusalem. Look at verse 26, because the people in Jerusalem are a little bit leery. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They were all scared of Saul. They've heard of this guy. His, his reputation was notorious. He arrests Christians. He was standing there when Stephen was stoned. He was breathing out murderous threats against the church. This is a bad dude. He is a bad guy. And now all of a sudden, he wants to join us? I don't know, man. I don't think so. But it took a man named Barnabas who came along and helped 
smooth things over. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. It says that Saul stayed with them and he moved about freely with them until, well, the Jews in Jerusalem decided they wanted to kill Saul too. And they hid him and then they helped him escape and uh, he fled Jerusalem, and he, they sent him to his hometown of Tarsus. He went to his hometown of Tarsus. This is an incredible story about how somebody who, I mean, everybody was terrified of this guy. All the Christians were frightened of this man because he was, I mean, he was bad. He was persecuting the church. He was threatening to kill Christians. And now all of a sudden he's become one of them. I think that Saul lived with a lot of guilt over his past. And the reason I think that is because of what he wrote to his young protege, the young preacher Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, this is a little bit long, but I want to read this for you. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, this is what Tim, uh, Paul told Timothy about his conversion. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And what does he say? Of whom I am the what? The worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Saul, who became Paul, looked at his life and said, I am the worst of sinners. And I've told you this before, but it gives me such great hope that I can never be worse than number two. Because I too, and maybe you're like me, I hope you're not, but maybe you're like me and you live with a lot of guilt about past decisions you made, about past choices you made, about stupid mistakes you made back in your younger days or stupid mistakes that you made yesterday. You may live with a lot of guilt and shame over those things and I don't believe that God wants to guilt you or shame you. I believe that God wants to forgive you and I believe that God wants to forgive absolutely everyone. And if he could forgive Saul who persecuted the church and put Christians in prison and oversaw their deaths, who was a murderous, violent man and who was a, a persecutor and a blasphemer, if God can forgive Saul, I know that he can forgive you and he can forgive me. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, the things that we've said, the things that we've done, the things that we've thought, the things that we haven't done, the, things, the good things we're supposed to do, the bad things we're not supposed to do, God can forgive all of that. So there's three lessons that we need to learn from Saul's conversion. The first is this. Don't judge anyone by their past. The worst sinner can be changed by 
grace. And that's what it is. Grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. It is a free gift of God's love and favor. And that free gift is for you and for me. So don't judge anyone by their past. The worst sinner can be changed by grace. Because sometimes we do. We, we judge people by their past, don't we? Or we condemn people. We find out somebody did something once. And we'll find out somebody did this and they made this mistake or they made this error. Or they committed this sin or they committed these sins. And we will judge them by their past. And we will, oh man, God could never forgive that person. I, I, can, I just don't understand how they could ever become a Christian. I don't understand how they could ever come to church. I hope they never come to my church. And we judge people by their past. Do you want God to judge you by yours? Well, I've never done anything wrong. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I've never sinned in that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. You sinned in other ways that other person hasn't sinned in. Huh. Don't judge others by their past. The grace of God can forgive even the worst of sinners. Saul said that was him. So don't judge others by their past. The worst of sinners can be saved by grace. Secondly, your past doesn't define your future in Jesus, and neither does theirs. Your past doesn't define your future in Jesus, and neither does theirs. That's important. Your history doesn't determine your destiny. I want to say that one more time. Your history doesn't determine your destiny. Jesus determines your destiny. Your history does not. Jesus rewrites history. That's what he does. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ by believing in him, turning away from sin and repentance, confessing your faith, getting baptized, Jesus rewrites your story. He deletes your history and he rewrites your destiny. Your history does not determine your destiny. Jesus determines your destiny. And I just, don't let your future be determined by your past. And don't let other people's past determine their future in your eyes. Extend to others the same grace that you want God to show you. Don't condemn others because of their past. You wouldn't want them to condemn you because of yours. Last lesson we need to learn is anyone can come to Jesus for forgiveness. Anyone can come to Jesus for forgiveness. We sang the song just a little bit ago, Come As You Are. And we mean that here. We mean that at GFCC. You can come as you are. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to clean up your act to come to Jesus. Uh, you don't have to um, uh, put on airs here. You don't have to pretend like you've got it all together. You don't have to act like you have it all together. It's okay to not be okay. We believe that here. Your past doesn't determine your future. Anyone can come to Jesus for forgiveness. And, and I mean that. Like the worst of sinners. The people you look at and go, man, they got too many tattoos. Or they have too much of baggage in their past. Or they have too many errors or faults or sins that they've committed. They've done this. They've done that. They've had this. They've had that. Uh, they, they used to do this. Or they're still doing that. That's not your job. Your job isn't to condemn 
people. Your job is to point them to Jesus. Because anyone can come to Jesus for forgiveness. Anyone can come to Jesus for forgiveness. And we got to remember that. I mean, we as Christians need to remember that. Because there may be people that you're looking at. There may be people that you know that you're like, man, they could never become a Christian. They just might surprise you. They could never become a follower of Jesus Christ. Or I hope they don't come to my church. Moment of honesty. If you ever say that, if you ever say, man, I hope those people never come to my church. I hope you never come back. Because that's not your place. Your place is not to play God and to tell people they're not welcome at this church. That's not your place. That's not your job. And so if you ever say, I hope those people don't come to my church, I hope you find a new church or you find a new heart. Because everyone, and I mean this, everyone is welcome in my church. Because anyone can come to Jesus for forgiveness. And that includes me.